Deadline day dashes and a disappointing defeat for Norwich City, all in the space of 24 hectic hours for the Canaries. It was obviously deadline day on Friday, defeat to Rotherham on Saturday. And Norwich left it uncharacteristically late to uh, get some <laughs> business done in the window and then suffered what was uh, a defeat that felt a bit like a hangover of some kind of description, particularly that first half display. We're going to get into all of the various strands concerning Norwich City and the last few days that has been. I'm Connor Southwell, joined by Paddy Dabbitt, who despite late interest in the transfer market has uh, remained with us, which is... Uh, From no, said no one, Connor, said no one. Well, <laughs> That my my other plan was to say that you were sat in a car park like Peter Rod M. Wingy somewhere. So um, you know, I, I think I went for the, yeah. the one that was a bit more flattering to you. Thank you. That's that's Thank all you. right. That's even, all right. Though, even though it's rooted in fa- fanciful notions of uh, interest from elsewhere, but yeah, no, sadly, uh, I'm going for the. Uh, let me think of somebody suitably longevity. I'm going for the Wes route. I'm going for my testimonial, mate. Nice, nice. Uh, Okay, yeah, I was going to try and think of a footballer that I, I would be, but I, I don't think it, it works to be honest. Um, but you, you can you can have Wes. We'll we'll let you have Wes. That's that's fine. I think um, I don't know. Maybe maybe Adam Drury, just reliable and, more and dependable. More his long, more, more his, yeah, I was going to say sorry, you're breaking up a little bit, Connor. More, more in terms of his longevity than any actual ability or talent. I might add. But anyway, let's move on. Move on. Let's swiftly yeah move on to more more exciting matters or more enjoyable matters. Not which was Rotherham, but there you go. Can't win them all. Yes, let's uh, let's let's start with with Rotherham. Norwich City's first league defeat of the season. Um, Paddy, it was it was a defeat really where Norwich City were beaten by themselves in the first half. A really poor performance. They got caught on the chin by a very good Rotherham side who performed very very well. But it was interesting to hear David Wagner and Angus Gunn both say at the end of the game that they kind of felt it was their shortcomings rather than perhaps the game plan that Rotherham inflicted on them that was the reason for for this defeat. Do you do you concur with those assessments that that both Wagner and, and Gunn made in the wake of that 2-1 defeat? I would. Um, we were there, obviously, and uh, the benchmarking of what had gone before, particularly in league games, um, to what we saw in that first half, it was... Don't want to... Don't wanna, uh, over catastrophized because it is one defeat in seven. Um, and, it, and that is a very, very good start still. Um, but there was far too many echoes of, of the throwback to last season. Not not all of last season under Wagner because he only came in in January, but certainly when it started to go south post Millwall um, to really have anything that, that, that would trouble opponents. Um and there was far too much of that in the first half, definitely. And that, that was you know, quite a sobering 45 minutes, really, from a Norwich persuasion. Uh, it did get better and they got the early goal in the second half. But even then, I thought after probably 10 or 15 minutes post-Bashnak's lifeline, um, it, it, it sort of unravelled again. And, and then you, you ended up with... Pretty, uh, pretty poor in terms of quality into the box from both wide areas and, and, and trying to look for Ashley Barnes and later Shane Duffy, which was, you know, not going to get the job done and didn't get the job done. I, I don't think you could dispute Rotherham deserved it over the 90 minutes. They were just better and able to impose what they were trying to do onto Norwich. And conversely, Norwich were very... Uh, Lackluster, essentially, and it was it was actually good. I mean, you spoke to Angus and, and I spoke to David, and it and it was good that 
close proximity to the final whistle that he had processed it and, it, and he had already broken it down, David Wagner, and, and really pinpointed it. Um, you know, he talked about tactically there were some issues in terms of too many players coming t- towards the ball rather than trying to stretch the play. And of course, that you know, immediately you, you think about the, the, the whole dimension of Josh Sargent unavailable yesterday, but more problematically until January now, the confirmation that he's having surgery on Monday going to be Christmas slash January before we see him again competitively in a Norwich shirt. So they've got this period of time and a lot of games between now and then that they're going to have to unpick that tactical element of what Sargent was giving them alongside Barnes, what he isn't going to be giving them for the foreseeable uh, and, and how they solve that issue. But also there was a sense from David uh, Um, and the robustness and the energy associated with him and what he's trying to do, but certainly what we've seen in, in these first six, seven weeks of the season. Um, you know, the energy and the intensity and the and the fire and the aggressiveness were all were all from the for the majority of the first half. And and, um, and Norwich just got himself pinned in, inside their own defensive third. They didn't seem to be able to find a way through. Um, in, any residual fashion, yeah, there was one or two moments of promise, but even then, you know, they were sloppy in possession when there was counters and transitions there for them. They, they, they lacked precision in what they were trying to do, and um, you know, it was better in the second half, but uh, um, but over the entirety, um, as David said, and I think Angus said, that, and they've clearly discussed this internally before they emerged from that dressing room. It felt like a reality check. It felt like. Don't turn up and, and take anything for granted. You know, what's gone before doesn't help you in, in the here and now. And, and and you know, if they needed to learn that, then then hopefully they will have learned that. And they've got, as David said, really two weeks now to sort of linger on it, which he feels might actually be a positive that, you know, that hurt and that disappointment, they will have to sit and suffer that for a little period. If, it, if they were go rolling straight into a game this coming Tuesday or this coming Wednesday, then then you, you package it, you park it, you move on. But it might not be the worst thing that, you know, that, that feeling in the pit of the stomach really uh, is going to linger a little bit and that they don't want that moving forward. And David Wagner certainly said that that defeat, he in his opinion, was a defeat that they inflicted almost on themselves. It was through their shortcomings and their failings and what they didn't do and the standards and the, and the level they'd hit consistently up to this point. They felt so to for him with those rooted in their shortcomings, then he will he will make it quite clear that that isn't going to be the case moving forward. So it's almost like he'll give them that strike, I think, uh, as a group. Um, but he just and also those supporters as well because it did feel a corner had been turned, and that was for me that first half particularly was a throwback to. Um, where a lot of the frustration came from the last 11 games of last season, where where you were watching a Norwich team in the Championship, in and out of possession, who were lacking the ideas, lacking the creativity, lacking the energy and the thrust um, to impose themselves on opponents. It was the other way around, and we saw that very definitely in the first half, particularly at Rotherham. And, uh, you know, when you felt that was associated with the past under Wagner, it was a little bit of a throwback. But as I say, you know, and we'll probably refer to this point liberally through this podcast, context is everything. And it's one defeat in seven games. 
and and it shouldn't outweigh by any stretch uh, all the huge positive work that has been done, both in terms of results, but also performances as well. So I think we just need to retain a, a healthy degree of perspective, but, but but you can't hide away from what we saw in the first half wasn't acceptable. Yeah, agreed. And uh, I, I was stood there listening to, to Angus Gunn speak and to David Wagner speak and um, did did feel it kind of felt like they were being quite harsh on themselves. But maybe that's a reflection of the standards that they've set, because as poor as they were in that first half and they were very poor and we'll get into into the reasons why. And you've kind of named perhaps the primary reason um, they they still went pretty close to getting a result. They weren't a million miles away. If their final ball would have been a little bit better, if they'd had a bit more quality, maybe even, dare I say, a little bit more depth in the squad that they carried to Rotherham, they may well still have walked away with a point. Um, and the second half performance was better. They dropped Sarah back into a deeper position. They got him on the ball a little bit more. And um, because they weren't necessarily stretching the game in the same way they have done in recent weeks, that helped create a bit more space centrally. Rotherham had to go and press Gabriel was struggling to go and press Gabriel Sauer in the same way. And so it created a bit more space centrally. And in the end, we saw Rotherham move to a back three, which um, did kind of help them to an extent. But that was as a result of the changes that, that Norwich City made at half time. So we did see a reaction. But for me, you, you've identified the real core reason why that first half was such a struggle, because we saw it at Huddersfield. And, and it's very simplistic, I think. Josh Sargent's not there. Therefore, uh, if Josh Sargent would have been dropped into this, they would have won the game. I don't think that's that's necessarily true. I think it was more a, a nuanced point of what we've seen in recent games is, yes, with Josh Sargent, but also with others as well, Norwich would stretch the game. There'd be runs in beyond. And what that does is not just give options for defenders and deeper lying players to clip a ball over the top to relieve pressure and get you up the pitch, but also because you're dragging defenders with you, it creates space centrally. And they didn't do either of those things. So Rotherham were able just to kind of park in Norwich's half in a fairly high block. It wasn't even necessarily a really good sustained press. It was just a real solid block of pressure that they placed in Norwich's half and said, go on then, play through us. And Norwich ultimately were unable to do that, both because of the way Rotherham um, deployed it, but also because of their own quality. But that... I guess that that kind of lack of impact in behind, which I know David Wagner spoke about, and we noticed actually in, in the first half throughout the game. Um, I don't know, where are you at with that, Pad? Is that reflective of the, the duo that was up front? Is that an attacking issue more broadly? It did, it did seem a problem for him, didn't it? Particularly in that, in that first half of, uh, of that game, there wasn't the same energy or, or um, enthusiasm or hunger to, to get in behind and, and really make those runs that stretch the game, but also create space for Norwich City's midfielders to get on the ball in deeper areas. Yeah, well, the two facets you, you, you've you sort of mapped out there, Connor, is, is I think you bring them together. Yeah, of course, you take Sargent out of that team, the goals, three goals in the last three or his previous three championship appearances, that more so for me was the relationship he had with, with Ashley Barnes, which almost felt like... Um, you know, it was almost a telepathic thing that, that emerged. I mean, I remember going right back to in terms of publicly, and you could even see then the, the understanding of space and, and awareness of where each needed to be on the pitch and the roles within that dynamic. And that's just continued on when the real business started. So, of course, if you disrupt that by taking Josh Sargent out of the equation, Adam Eder isn't a like-for-like -like player. He is... His game isn't built on the same tenants, um, you know, both very physically um, powerful athletes. But, you know, one wants to stretch the play a little bit more. Adam Eder always wants to sort of drop in a bit deeper and and, um, 
and then, and then maybe you know if I was looking at the two, I think of the two, Sergeant is better in open play. I think either inside the box, we, we've seen that, or you know we've seen it this season again. Um, you know, inside the box, if he gets the right service, he will score goals. He has that striker's instinct. But I just think outside the box, he in, certainly in the, in the in the demands that Wagner wants on his his forward and attacking minded players, he, he's not quite the same type of template uh, or profile as Josh Sargent. That's that is a factor, and they'll have to work through that. And of course, into that equation now comes uh, uh, the Forest lad they brought in, uh, you know, um, uh, Wang. So, you know, we'll, we'll discover what he can add to the party. But the other point I think is relevant as well, because I don't think it was simply Josh Sargent goes out, Adamida comes in, yeah. the performance level in the first half drops markedly up. And I've seen, you know, and I thought it was a very fair point to make by somebody on social media um, earlier today that that was the third away game in a week and the travel involved, I think they'd calculated a thousand miles, you know, Huddersfield and back, Bristol and back, and then uh, obviously, you know, culminating with Rotherham and back. And I know that doesn't apply to the whole squad, you know, the likes of Angus and Ben Gibson and Kenny McLean missed out at Bristol, but the majority of that squad, They've done a lot of miles, a lot of travelling. And yes, they're, they're professional athletes. They're, they have that elite sports science and, and recovery network around them. But still, you know, it, it's not conducive to, to retaining the freshness and the intensity that you need, particularly when you, you come up against the Rotherham team who were were really on it in that regard, in terms of the athleticism, the the, the power, the, the, the energy, the intensity, um, the almost maniacal way they they sort of you know set up camp in the Norwich half in that first half and 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 really wanted to play the game in that part of the pitch I I think that it was a factor inevitably um but you know that said you know David Wagner in one of his answers post-match he wanted to downplay that now maybe that was for, for public consumption but you know privately he would accept as, as I think it is, it is fair to accept that you know the third away game with all that travel you probably are going to find a dip in terms of performance level, uh, athletic performance. But, you know, he, he made the point that, well, the second half was where they needed to be. So, so you can't really say it was a freshness factor. Um, it, it was maybe just a, a sluggishness. But, you know, it's it's not only the physical element. Mentally, the, the edge might have just been slightly off because it was the end of a quite a congested period of away games and away travel. But um, so for me, yeah, I... I, I I, I would tend to agree. I don't think it's necessarily all on Adam Eder because that wouldn't be fair in the slightest, really, um, why they were so off it in that first half. It's a factor. Um, and now another positive for me that they David and his coaching staff have two weeks freed from the game cycle um, to really think about that and the tactical elements of what was wrong in that performance in the first half and, and focusing in on the, the forward areas of the pitch and that platform that they've hitherto had with Sargent and Barnes that they didn't have in the first half with Eder and Barnes and how they get past that because they're going to have to get past it. They're going to have to come up with a, uh, a, a process in terms of the, the top end of the pitch and the structure with the ball um, that doesn't rely on just Sargent for the foreseeable, sadly. Um, but... But also, I think, you know, it, it wouldn't be fair not to point out that, you know, maybe there was a factor of mental and physical fatigue is probably a bit too strong, but certainly that edge wasn't there in the first half. And that might have, I think, helped them to counteract because we did see glimpses even in the first half when they were able, there was their best move for me of the entire game was Gabby Zara and Jack Stacey yeah. in Norwich's right back area, managed to break the press, 
I think Rowe was involved. I think Barnes was involved. I think Yanulis was the final overlapping run on the opposite side. Ball gets cut back. Sarah, eight yards out with his quality, he has to hit the target. And there was one or two other moments. Adam Eda um, got himself in a good advanced position. Jack Stacey, Fashnacht. They they were able still to do it. It was just comparably to, to previous games on a much smaller sample. And, and I think, for me, inevitably, you do have to look at you know, maybe there was there was a lot of miles on the clock physically and mentally this this past week, and certainly that you know that that will be taken off the table when Stoke ro- roll into town two weeks hence because they, they allowing for some international commitments. The vast majority of that group of players do now have two weeks to recharge mentally and physically, um, and when Stoke, as I say, come to Car Road when we return to to the Championship. Um, that 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 simply won't be an issue. So then, maybe then we can hone in on the, the tactical elements of um, how David and his coaches go about, you know, putting something in place that is is as effective as it was hitherto, but without Josh Jardin. Yeah, agreed. Um, it's it's interesting. We, we both referenced those chats uh, that that we had individually with you, obviously with Wagner and, and me with Garn, and that neither of them said it explicitly. But there was a, a reference to I don't know if complacency is the right word, but certainly the attitude and approach to to, to this game, given how much has been put into the squad in terms of that. Uh, hope to inject it full of personality and experience and uh, mentality. And, and we know, similarly, I guess, to, to Jurgen Klopp, uh, we know Wagner is very much a disciple. This is this kind of mentality monster approach to his teams. Um, is there a uh, concerns very strong, but but is it something that we need to note as maybe like a blemish on, on, on the record so far? Because all of that has been discussed very positively thus far. The fact that that first half performance came and, and both of those people uh, are talking a little bit, again, didn't ever use specifically the word complacency, but there was there was an alluding to it. Is is that something, again, I don't want to use concern because I think that disregards the context of this being one game out of a very, very good start. But is that something to note moving forward? That's something that they have to try and nip in the bud, isn't it? And I, I guess it's proof that for all of the progress that they've made, there's still probably some evolution to get to the stage that they need to be in from a mental aspect with with, with this group. Absolutely, yeah. And for me, that's implicit in David Wagner using the phrase reality check. You know, whatever you think you've done or however good you think you are or whatever you think you're set to do this season, um, if you pitch up at Rotherham and you show them even if it was on a subconscious level, but if you show them any disrespect and that, I mean, that was their, I think I'm right in saying that was their first win of the season. So if you're looking yeah. at it um, and thinking, well, we just need to, you know, turn up here and um, do what we've done hitherto and we'll walk walk away with three points and probably another bag full of goals and maybe even a clean sheet if we've really performed. Um, if there was a trace of that, um, then then yes, hopefully that um, that is a, a very pertinent reminder. And as as David said, you know, in his opinion, that wasn't anything Rotherham particularly did outstandingly well. That was more the shortcomings in his own team and his own team's performance. And if he sees that again, um, then then there, I think there will be a very strong reaction because, uh, because you know, for me, to repeat what I said at the outset, that, that did have a, an echo of, of that decline, that sad, slow trudge into mid-table um, last season when... I don't even think you, you. I mean, that wasn't a complacency thing. That was just like they were shot. The confidence had drained out of that group. Yes, there was injuries to senior players in key areas of the pitch, and and the and the players who were coming in were not 
either a good enough or b ready in terms of some of the younger players uh, and it was a it was an amalgam of things but it was a toxic mix and then the proof was in one win in 11 um so yeah i mean any sense that uh, you know you, you were you were on the precipice of, of a, a similar cycle then i'm not surprised that maybe that's why maybe wagner and gun internally and externally were quite keen to to message it in a way that no that isn't good enough that's not where this group are this season our standards are higher. The demands they place on each other, not just David Wagner on those players or, or David and his coaches on those players. You know, there's a lot of senior lads in there. I've seen Ashley Barnes on social media since the game. You know, not good enough. They need to get back to the drawing board a little bit, work hard over these two weeks and attack Stoke and Leicester, the other side, with the, with the, with the relish and the energy and the intensity that we saw, you know, Southampton, Hall, you can, you can list them all, Huddersfield, you know, Huddersfield away and Rotherham away, for me, bracketed in terms of similar challenges. Two very uncompromising teams with a with a brand of football that you know what it is. Um, it, it's a physical challenge. You have to stand up to that. You have to w- win your battles. And 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 if you do, then you hope your quality comes through. And and what was the difference between Huddersfield and, and, and Rotherham? Um, you know, it wasn't just Josh Sargent's omission. I think it was a general sense that um, that group of players individually and collectively um, below par. Um, I mean, he's he's in the picture behind me now and I'm not singling him out particularly, but Gabby Zara, nowhere near the levels we've seen yeah. hitherto um, in terms of his influence and his quality. But you could go from front to back, the centre-backs, and the full-backs, even Johnny Rowe, you know, he, <laughs> from the high point he's been at, I don't think he got anywhere near his level. So there was a general weariness maybe and I, and I say as as I, as I say that you know again my mind does go back to and it's not an excuse you know you're not trying to give them cheap get out but you know if you've gone Huddersfield away you've gone Bristol away and then you can you complete your week with Rotherham away you know and, and particularly the nature of the Huddersfield game even though Norwich run out comfortable winners that was a, a physically demanding game you know Bristol City in its own way, um, you know, the, the, there was a lot of effort expended in that game as well. And then you roll it on. Um, and of course, it's very difficult as well. You know, tones are set early on in games, aren't they? How games develop a lot of the time is, is a is a byproduct of those first 15, 20 minutes. You know, the, the good start, cliche soundbite. And, and when you find yourself 2-0 down before half time and you've not played well, you know, that that's a hell of a mountain to climb, even against the team who... First win of the season, and I think we'd all expect them to be. You know, their 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 mission is to stay in the division, so they will be at the wrong end of the table. You would expect, but even then, if you in the championship, you give a team like that to, a two goal head start, then um, you know it's going to take something to really overhaul that. So, yeah, I, I think ultimately for me, um, too many players were below the levels we know they're capable of, and that's where the frustration comes now. That that what we saw from Norwich yesterday is not the sum total of what this group can produce. They're, they're far better than that individually and collectively. And, and and if there was any complacency or any sense of entitlement, then, um, you know, maybe to get this type of afternoon so early in the season, um, it's certainly not a damaging defeat in terms of the bigger picture. Um, and if it has the desired effect and they, and they, they come out the traps fast against Stoke and Leicester thereafter, um, and those two performances at Car Road are more akin to what we saw in the previous six games, then we can put bracket this one as a bit of a blip and uh, a bit of a reminder that um, 
you know, where Norwich want to get to this season. They're going to have to have plenty more afternoons where they go to teams like Rotherham, like Huddersfield the previous weekend, and they dig in and they roll their sleeves up metaphorically and collectively and, and figuratively. And, uh, and they get back on the coach where they might not have played well. It might not have been pretty, but they get on the coach with a point or three. And um, teams who get promoted are able to do that. Yeah, and, and that I think is where the, and this is going to be a funny expression, but where the optimism comes from this defeat, because you've got people talking about what they didn't do rather than than, than perhaps what their opponents did. And again, I want to stress Rotherham deserve to win the game. They were very, very good in that, in that first half. But from a Norwich perspective, they're left reflecting on, on, on the stuff that they didn't do. And obviously the, the strike from, from Dex, uh, Dexter Lambisca to, to, to open the scoring is an unbelievable strike. But I know Norwich will nitpick, for example, what they didn't do to deal with the long throw initially. Jordan Hugel's header as well. They got overloaded in a pretty simple throw-in situation. And, and, and obviously Hugel gets above Duffy for the for the cross. So, so there will be elements within that. They'll look at what they didn't do. And again, I think even on, on the very low level of basics, you had too many players making too many simplistic errors, even to the likes of Gabriel Sarra, who we've, we've raved about for a long, long time, even amidst that kind of one in, in 11 run towards the back end of, of last season, because he has constant quality. He does the basics. Well, his first touch is, is always good. His, his passing is, is, is always good, particularly over a, a short range wasn't quite there yesterday just everything quite felt a little bit off and when you have five or six players all experiencing that kind of um, situation and performance level it's very hard at any level then to to win a game of football Norwich did it very well last week where they scored two goals in a moment where the game was really in balance and it won them, won it for them and this weekend Rotherham probably probably did the same and they were on the other end of that they got caught on the chin pretty early and, and, and were left kind of stumbling around all afternoon and in the second half they tried to throw a couple of wild punches but just couldn't quite land them in the in the way that they would that, that they would like to and I think you know as well I think it's very important because it's easy after a defeat to be very reactive to a result and to be very reactive to a performance but across a 46 game season you're going to have games where teams don't a team doesn't perform very well Norwich won't perform very well and they will lose games and they will lose a few games this season what they need to ensure that is that this is one of a few games that they that they lose and 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 it then becomes about the response because very very quickly if you get to the other side of the international break and you stumble against Stoke and you lose to Leicester and you go to Plymouth and you struggle then suddenly People are going to begin to talk about, oh, you know, or, or the quite we're probably going to raise them as well. Has the bubble burst? Has this been a, you know, a, have we kind of all been hoodwinked by a really poor start? So, in, in many ways, this type of wake up call can be really good. It can focus minds. It can keep those standards high. But I also think, uh, and again, I'm going to use the Daniel Farkerism. It's important not to get that deep with it. They've lost a the game. Every team in this Leicester, I think every team in the league now has lost a game. It happens, uh, and it's it's just going to be about now how they how they respond to it. One point I did I did want to make, Pat, before we move on to the transfer window was. Um, the second half because they were much improved and actually for as much as we've spoken about Adamida um, and that's obviously with the context of Josh Sargent I don't want it to feel like we're, we're singling out Adamida because we're not we could easily speak about Dimi Yanoulis who uh, when he has a poor game has a really poor game increasingly at Norwich City Jack Stacey both of those players have been really good at the start of the season both really struggled yesterday we've already mentioned Gabriel Sara who didn't have his his best game Ashley Barnes I, I, I felt 
for all of the praise that we gave him last week, um, just wasn't really that effective this weekend for the reasons that we've that we've discussed. Um, Duffy and, and Gibson were left kind of looking at each other for, for Jordan Hugill's goal. So so you could, we, we've probably gone through, what, 10 of 11 players there. I haven't mentioned Kenny McLean. I thought he was OK, actually, um, throughout the, the whole piece. But um, so, so again, I, I didn't want to make it feel like we're, we're singling that out. But the point I did want to make in that second half pad was the the squad and where where the squad is at at the moment. It's a very young bench that, that David Wagner could could name. Obviously impacted slightly by Andrew Omavamadeli leaving very late. He was planned to be in the match day squad. He wasn't. We'll come on to to him and his departure um, soon. But they, they've also got obviously Borja Sainz to come back. They've got Jakob Sorensen to come back. Whether you whether you think he's a frontline option or not, he he would I think occupy a space on the bench. Uh, Onel Hernandez as well. Similarly. Um, Obviously now, uh, Yuzhou Huang and uh, and Danny Bart as well. That's six players there that that we've counted that uh, aren't in this matchday squad. Adam Forshaw, there's a seventh. So you know, there's there's a long list of players who weren't at the New York Stadium that probably could have helped David Wagner and Norwich change the game a little bit more than they did. They didn't have a striker on the bench, for example, a recognised one. They had to turn to to Tony Springett, who's who's played a very limited amount of football. Shemeswaf Poeta, who has played a very limited amount of football um, over the last 12 months. And obviously, I know he impressed at Bristol City uh, the other night, but that's quite a big load for where he's at in terms of his individual season as well. And um, there is mitigation in terms of the squad that Norwich City took. They had what Callum Fisher, Jaden Warner. It was a very, very young bench is the point I'm getting at. And it felt like maybe the options that they had to alter the the course of that game and the dynamic of that game maybe weren't of the same level as they've had in recent weeks where you've had players like Adam Eder coming off the bench and, and impacting it from a positive perspective. So is this game also, and you mentioned kind of the the week that they've had in terms of travel, is it also a reflection that they were probably, just in terms of depth for this occasion, just a little bit off where they, they perhaps will be after the break as well? Yeah, and, and that's that's the opposite, I think, because in, in that six-game unbeaten run, because they've got that depth and, they and you know, nine, obviously, permissible substitutes allowed now in your match day squad, they have been able to change it. And, and David has talked up that... Ability, you know, Adam Eder open the day of the season comes off the bench, 96 minute winner. You know, Fashnak came off the bench, scored at Southampton. Um, I'm sure there's one or two other examples if I could stop and think about them. Where, and I, and I thought Poheta actually yesterday, despite you know, very limited options, he actually, I thought there was a few balls he put into the box that he did continue on in the same vein from his Bristol performance. I, I thought he added something to the mix, and um, but that was you know, that probably underlined the point that, that we're talking about. You know, a, a guy who's been out most of last season, really, who's still very much, you know, handled with care in terms of bringing him back up to to the load that that you could put on him, and uh, and he was the only one really who could even even nudge the dial in terms of you know going in trying to get a goal and get back into that game, and uh, yeah, I mean, obviously Huang will add uh, if we're just focusing in on on the post sergeant kind of mix um, to the forward areas. Um, I mean, we thought maybe even in the first half yesterday, you could have, because he he looked quite effective in that role at, at Bristol, you could have thrown Gibbs on and, and maybe pushed Sargent further forward. That might have given them a bit more of a platform. It certainly would have stretched the play and and just another good quality technical player. I mean, we we didn't reference Marcelino Nunes, of course. You know, he was he was available yesterday, wasn't he? And, and didn't come on. And, um, you know, he was very good, I thought, in that quarterback role in the second half at Bristol. And, and he triggered... You know the, the the move that led to Poeta's winner 
in that League Cup game. So, yes, I mean, when you look at it and you, you're looking at, you know, uh, probably a dearth of, of game-changing options on the bench yesterday, that, that might cause a little palpitation or a little tremor uh, amongst Norwich's fan base. But I, I think when we get to the other side of this break and, you know, David did give us an update that, that Hernandez with a broken hand, he'll be back in training. Science, who I think could be the kingmaker in this equation in terms of, you know, another attacking option to throw into the mix. He might be a little bit longer. It sounds like they need to put him on a track that, that Forshaw is currently on where both of those haven't had a pre-season worth of the name and they need to get an abbreviated one in now, which will include minutes for 21s. You know, Forshaw played 45 minutes on Saturday morning. Uh, I think if there's an upcoming game over this fortnight's period, he would feature there, possibly science as well. So it's not going to be immediately the other side uh, of this international break that we can we can really put for sure forward and science forward as frontline options. Onel hopefully will be in that bracket, but um, but it shouldn't be too far after that point. And and I think that will then with Gibbs, with Nunes, with Puerta, um, just allow them a little bit more wriggle room. Um, that wasn't probably available for Saturday's game. And uh, and obviously, again, you know, we're talking about factors can you, as to why they've, they've, you know, been so far off it. And, 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 and that sense as well, that maybe there was players there who, in an ideal world, David would like to rotate a little bit and, and inject some freshness from the bench. And, and that wasn't really a viable option, bar maybe Nunes. He, he I did think we might see in the second half, but, um, but David decided not, not to go that route. But, uh, yeah, I mean, broad, if it, this is a broader sort of look at the squad depth and a fear that they're going to be caught out, then, you know, nobody knows in terms of the injury situation. That, 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 but it feels like they do have enough options for me when everybody or the majority of everybody in the group are available. And, and they clearly felt that in terms of their squad construction over this transfer window, which closed on Friday. Otherwise, they'd have gone out again. You know, they allowed a player like Abu Kamara, who got his first career goal um, for Portsmouth on Saturday. He's there, He's gone out to, to Portsmouth League One loan. There is a recall option there. David Wagner was very keen to insert one of those. So that's not in the here and now, but um, but should should they need to find a, a more forward-thinking option, he's a, he's a player they could recall. And, um, you know, other than that, then it's, it's for me, it's going to have to come from the players who are now in the building and between now and January. And, um, you know, I don't have any concerns that, that there's a lack of squad depth here uh, for me. Um, I just think it was a fairly unique set of circumstances, both with the the disruption from Friday night and the transfer window and obviously the sergeant injury as well. Um, but I think once we get to the other side of the international break, uh, touch wood, um, I think I, th- I think City squad depth won't be something we'll be, we'll be concerned about as we roll into Christmas period. Yeah, uh, I, I concur for, for the reasons mapped out. And, and I think that was just important to, to highlight a couple of other things to mention as well. Angus Gunn made his 100th appearance for Norwich City. I think um, I, I read uh, a stat, and again, I think it was from uh, from NCFC numbers, saying that uh, him and, and, and Brian, obviously his dad, are the first father-son duo to do that. So that's a, a lovely achievement. And he spoke glowingly about that. Obviously, a, a boyhood Norwich fan, so the opportunity to do it. And he's taken a bit of the scenic route. He obviously left at a young age when he was in the academy to join Manchester City came back on loan, left again, came back again. So he's, he's taken the scenic route to 100 games, but nonetheless uh, a very dependable and, and, and I think, you know, obviously very uh, prominent now goalkeeping 
option for, for Norwich City. Gabriel Sara made his, his 50th as well. And, and even after this game, it made me laugh. I was speaking um, just before I fit in between kind of the press conferences and, and film my verdict. I was speaking to someone who uh, covers Rotherham every week and they were still singing Gabriel Sara's praises. Oh, what a player he is. And I had to remind them that's probably about as bad as he's played in a Norwich City shirt for a significant period of time. So that's that's an, an interesting reminder as well as as maybe to, to the quality that he has even even on, on an off day. And I think we saw a bit more of that in, in, in the second half as well. So two things to, to highlight. Let's move on to um, deadline day then, Paddy, because uh, I must admit, when I when I woke up on, on Friday morning, I wasn't quite... I, I had a feeling it would go late. I didn't have a feeling it would go as, as late as it did. Um, Norwich City took until half past one to, uh, to conclude their business in a very frenetic close to... to to the window, um, which is uncharacteristic, really, from the way that they've they've operated since Stuart Webber came in, in in charge. And we have to say it wasn't a situation where it was because they were they felt they had missing pieces that they were chasing. It was obviously reacting to a Josh Sargent injury, which David Wagner has confirmed is going to put him out likely until January, um, and he's going to have surgery on that on Monday, which is about as bad an outcome, I think, as anybody anticipated uh, for him. And uh, and we obviously wish him well and hope the surgery goes well. He's been such, as, as we mentioned, a, a key cog to, to what Norwich City have, have been doing, yes. But it's also a real blow for him, somebody who's had to wait a significant portion of time to get that opening and that opportunity to lead the line for Norwich City. Had a lot of frustration at obviously having to do different jobs play out wide in, in a really struggling team, which isn't the role necessarily that he wanted to play. It was a big opportunity for him. He took the number nine shirt to now miss a significant portion of the season with, with an injury um, is 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 not ideal. He did, he did a podcast as well, just to clarify this point, um, to which um, cleared up that it wasn't actually the the contact with Lee Nichols and and kind of that post impact after heading the ball in that caused the injury. It was actually the initial block. So anyone who's, who's maybe rushed to to blame Lee Nichols for, for that injury. Uh, it was good to, to hear Josh Sargent clear up exactly how that happened, but uh, nonetheless, a significant blow for Norwich City. So that meant they headed into deadline day as it stood then, um, trying to do a striker, trying to sign a striker on loan. They'd obviously been linked with uh, Tom Cannon uh, was, was the main one, although um, even though he was a player of interest, there was never a £7 million bid for him and anyone with any sort of grasp on Norwich City's finances would uh, would understand why that wasn't the that wasn't the case. There was a couple of of loose striking links before that, um, and then it began deadline day with with a link to Kiefer Moore, uh, and then all hell broke loose, Paddy, on 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 how it went. But they ended up obviously then having to react to Andrew Omobamadeli, um, which is where I want to start this because someone said to me on on Friday morning, um, who knows about these things that you know keep an eye on that situation. That could be one that you know the 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 touch paper is lit and it could explode and goodness me they were they were right paddy because it was a very very late deal a very very late agreement that was struck to the extent that andrew mamadeli was actually in rotherham it's uh, got a bit of the lewis grabbing about it but probably a, a better side for for Nori city i don't know what it is about rotherham and hotels in rotherham um, but there you go and he he obviously embarked on a very quick dash to nottingham to complete a medical but um it started off the day with 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 Bournemouth, um, from what we were led to believe, kind of sniffing around. They were obviously preparing if Lloyd Kelly departed. I think there was interest from from Tottenham, wasn't there? Um, 
Nottingham Forest at that stage were trying to, to keep options warm. I think they, they're in for, for Trevor Chalaber, if reports are to be believed, and ended up with, with Andrew Amabamadeli. Just talk me talk me through how that all played out, Paddy, because we've we obviously had a bit more information subsequently on the process that led from perhaps that Friday morning where Nottingham Forest were there and they were they were making pretty derisory offers for Andrew Amabamadeli to the point where he leaves Norwich City as somebody who could be could being the word with with add-ons and various aspects of the deal become a 20 million pound departure for the football club it's quite a quite a step to make in in, in what was just a just a few hours yes yeah and, and and it was the few hours but but i mean there was some telling pictures taken by our photographer who was getting very excited paul chester and after the bristol midweek game where on my banner that he played um, I've, I've never seen just sorry just to interrupt i was i was waiting to go into the mix zone and uh, i've never seen our photographer paul chesterton stood outside one desperate to to relay the information he's, i hadn't actually seen it in real time but worth saying he was absolutely spot on wasn't he he certainly was well you know he's as he always is as he always is pc but uh and and I said, well, if you haven't seen the frames, it's essentially it looked like the long goodbye, almost an emotional kind of um, motion uh, to to uh, peel off from the rest of the teammates at the final whistle, celebrating with the A fans, and just have his own private moment, really. Um, and they were reciprocating; they were singing his name. And uh, you know, I think there was, I think PC even said when he got back towards the sort of the tunnel area, Ashton Gate, there seemed to be one or two back backroom staff, but I'd, uh, you know, hug, um, sort of hugging and patting him. But I, I think that's pretty par for the course with players when they come off. They always sort of form a, one of those little mini guards of honour. Um, so I, I mean, I, I mean, funnily enough, on the night, spoke to somebody um, who would know about these things inside the club, and they say, well, if if he's off, then nobody's told us yet. So. Uh, but, but as, as the nature of these things, you know, there's so many planets getting um, circled and uh, and things that could happen. And and you've mapped it out then if you roll it on to, to Friday. It was, you know, I mean, it's just popped into my head, actually, a phrase that David Wagner came out with earlier in the summer about, about more, more so when will Norwich go again after that initial flurry when they brought in Barnes and brought in Stacey and brought in um, and Shane Duffy. But there'd been a lull then, and he came out with that um, rather prosaic phrase about, you know, we're just waiting for a stone or two to fall, and then all the other stones will fall. Well, it that to me was kind of it felt like where we were with Omabama Daily that there were clubs out there, you know, Bournemouth, you mentioned Forrest, who turned out to be the the suitor of choice. But you know, even you look at Fulham, who who were, you know, there was talk, a lot of chatter around that the Rabio and whether he would depart, and then if he did. They'd be looking for a, a similar profile of centre back, you know, Palace and Mark Guayhi. You know, he was persistently linked with outs, so it felt like because of the 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 finality of deadline and that's it, and nothing more can be done. That, that it might go late with Andrew, um, but probably not. We didn't feel as late um, to the extent as you rightly say, Connor. He was with the, the group at Rotherham to be part of the squad for Saturday's game, but he had to swiftly um, head to the East Midlands. As you rightly say, it would appear that the early contact between uh, the likes of Stuart Weber and his counterparts um, was was around figures that were, were simply not going to be acceptable to Norwich, you know, below 5 million is what we've, we're led to believe when it started on Friday morning, the, 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 the discussions of a, a substantive nature, should we say. So it's progressed throughout the day to the point where it's hit the numbers and David Wagner confirmed that afterwards it got to a very, very good offer that from a footballing perspective, 
and a financial perspective, he felt made sense. Um, and they're always making these decisions in terms of the, what's good, what's the best thing for the club in the best interest of the football club. And they felt a, a potential 20 million package. You know, there's a bit of conjecture about, you know, what's up front. But, but from what we're led to believe, it was the structure of that deal is more favourable in terms of what Norwich will get up front. There, it isn't packed with a back-end load of attendant clauses. You know, the, 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 both the, the figures and the structure of the deal got to a point where Norwich felt, yep, that's that's where we feel the valuation of Andrew is. And, and of course, then it moves to the player and his representatives. David has confirmed after the game. Of course, he was, as you would expect, very keen to get back to the Premier League and explore that opportunity. So it's a win-win uh, for all, all three parties, really, because Forrest are talking him up as one of the best defensive prospects in the country. That remains to be seen. I think we discussed this on our pre-match show at Rotherham that, yes, there is a potential there, but it is very much potential and injuries primarily have really stalled his, his development for me in the last two seasons um, from the player who first burst on the scene, who then got himself into the island, senior setup, and you just thought, wow, this guy has got everything physically, um, but his ability on the ball and, um, and the sky is proverbially the limit. Um, it hasn't quite happened for him, but Forrest clearly feel under under the guidance of Steve uh, of Steve Cooper there that they can mould him into you know a real good Premier League defender uh, and you hope that is the case because if it is then those clauses that would take the deal potentially up to 20 million will probably get hit so from Norwich's perspective now you want him to go on and flourish and realize that potential at Premier League level and then who knows what where he goes on to from there because there is a there is a very high highly uh, capable defender for me, I think. But 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 in the right here and right now, I think it's it's very much the right move for Norwich. I think financially it makes perfect sense given Norwich's uh, difficulties that have been mapped out clearly for anybody who, who who's still in in debating. You know they've got money in for Amabama Daly, they've got money in for Max Aarons, they've got money in for Rashid. So they got a top up from James Madison's move as well. Why haven't they gone out and, and lavished that on on players to bring into the club? Go and look at the, the the last set of accounts. You know, they were borrowing money against future revenue, two pillars, broadcast revenue, but also player sales, player trading, which is a key pillar of the Weber model that has been put in place in 2017. And it's probably because they haven't had those big ticket sales, a Ben Godfrey, a Madison, a Buendia, in the recent windows that has probably got them to this financially constrained position whereby they had to generate revenue. It's simple as that. So... But also added to that, and this is where I think David was coming from, the footballing dimension. He started the season second fiddle to, to Messrs Gibson and Duffy. So he's not even, it's not even you're taking a player who was crucially important to Norwich and that unbeaten run in the side. Um, so, you know, with the addition of Danny Bart, with Grant Hanley, hopefully closing in on a return as we as we get to the end of the year, the turn of the turn of the new year, they feel that. By selling Andrew, the financial element of the equation makes sense, but also footballing-wise, it's not going to, in David's view, and his is the view that matters, uh, it's going to dramatically weaken Norwich in terms of central defensive options. Um, time will tell on that, of course. But, uh, you know, once Forrest hit the numbers, then that deal was always going to get made. But they still needed, obviously, the deal sheet had to go in, that, that, that mechanism which gave them an extra two hours to get the deal and, and you know, I'll bowl it back to you, Connor, as you was driving our coverage along with Sam. I mean, you then had to uh, 
burn the midnight oil into until the early hours of Saturday. Not ideal when you've got a trip to Rotherham a few hours later, but um, but that's how late it went. And and then the knock-on effect, which we found out a little bit more about at Rotherham, the Danny Bart deal was literally seconds from 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 not getting done. That that Norwich had to get an extension of a smaller nature. I think it was to quarter past eleven. Yeah. The deadline was eleven in terms of getting business done, unless you was doing a Premier League move, which was on the Bama Daily, and you get the deal sheet in, and that gave you another two hours. But the extension period for an EFL transfer, as it was a free transfer in Bart's case, was 11.15. And that was very tight to the point where we've, we've been told that, you know, even at half 11 or so, Danny Bart is is having to be phoned up and sort of given the news that that deal's gone through and that it's been ratified by the FA and that he is now officially a Norwich player and he could then travel to Rotherham and he was in the director's box watching the game on Saturday. So... You know, there was more than an element of seat of the pants stuff, and and you obviously drove our coverage, Jay Connor. I mean, just give us a perspective of what that period from. I mean, we'll get into the, the Wang dimension, but certainly the Omabama Daily dimension. It was kind of nine nine onwards, and then it was almost yeah. carnage, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It it was. It was, and and I think for me, the um, the worst bit was between eleven, so when the window had officially closed, and probably about quarter past twelve, where. You're trying to speak to people and, and ask people what's going on. And no one really had a clue if anything had gone through. If it wasn't, there was a confidence that it had, but nobody could definitively say that it had. And so you had this this real line. And for me, I was sat there thinking, goodness, if this has all fallen through, uh, the the ramifications for Norwich City were, were going to be huge. They lost out on a ma- they would have lost out on a massive fee for Roma Bamadeli, which I think would have gone through regardless if of if Bart hadn't have gone through. But to have lost the Danny Bart deal at that stage would have been from a PR perspective, pretty catastrophic. You'd be a center half light really. And, and we all know uh, Norwich fans have kind of been wanting another one on top really of, of Omar Ramadelli and, and obviously now Bart, um, it would have left them really short. So it, it was, yeah, the, the hour between um, the deadline closing and, and then officially getting the message that it was all done and, and, and they're in a position now to, to kind of announce stuff. And as I said, it was on Bamadeli at one, Bart at quarter past and Huang at half one. That's how late it went. I think the last time I looked at, uh, at my phone on, on Saturday morning, as it was, was one forty nine. I think, before I eventually got my head down, having set up the live blog, I think, before 7 o'clock. So that, that gives you in the morning. So AM. AM. So that, that gives you an indication of just how long that day went. And I remember I put out a tweet on the on the Pinkin account and it read uh, something like, Norris City are in store for a busy deadline day. And it got to about four o'clock. And I think a few people on social media had uh, spotted they hadn't been particularly busy at that stage. But I can assure you behind the scenes, it was uh, it's like a duck, isn't it? Like everything looks calm above surface, but underneath it's frantically kicking its legs. It was a little bit like that. And obviously the Omabama Delhi stuff materialised and that was very late. I think the, the first time um, that... It, yeah, I think it was about seven where where it began to feel like something was happening, and about nine o'clock where it was definitively wheels are in motion, full steam ahead, everything was going. So that gives you an indication of how late that went. And then I think um, I think the time kind of we got wind of of Danny Bart that was about I think forty three minutes left to go in the window by the time that 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 that, that we put that story out there. So. Gives you an indication of, of how close it was. Danny Bart's a really interesting one. He's made 300 championship appearances. He's someone that Stuart Weber knows well from Wolves, Paul Clements, the goalkeeping coach. Likewise, um, 
we're told he he was someone who featured on the list of of centre back options that they've been doing a lot of work on. And I would imagine one of the scenario plannings that the recruitment team did was this eventuality that it it, it could likely go very very late, and then it became about assessing which options on the list were doable in the quickest period of time and that was that was Danny Bartz that's why he, that probably elevated him to, to the list it's obviously a one-year deal with the option of a of an extra year I think that gives Norrie some protection in that it doesn't block the pathway of young centre-backs like um, Adarabai Adar Ada Boyega, sorry, in, in, in the under 21s, who's who's been really impressing. Jaden Warner as well, who was on the bench, Jonathan Tompkinson, who was still waiting to hear whether his move to Bradford City have uh, has gone through. And I think Norwich City from their end are, are waiting on a few bits at the Bradford end to try and confirm whether or not that's the case. So you've got a kind of a, a short-term option, but in the long term, it shouldn't be it's not like they've given him a four-year deal and he's going to be kind of sat in someone's spot for the next uh, for the foreseeable future. Someone who who will offer real cover. He fits the profile of what they've been trying to do from a recruitment perspective as well. So that covers off the Omavamadeli Bart stuff. Just very quickly, Paddy on on Huang. I think by our own admission, he's not a player that we know too much about. I think we're we're both really intrigued to to see him. But I guess the point to reiterate here is that we've been told uh, by by multiple people actually that he's one that uh, when they compiled a list of players that they that they wanted to replace Josh Sargent, it was obviously very quickly formed. There was Kiefer Moore was on it. Jamal Lowe, we know, was on it. There was a, a young lad at Wolves who featured on it. But at the very top was was Yuzhou Huang. He's someone, a profile of player, the the type of player, an intelligent presser from what we're led to believe. Someone I don't think who's, who's necessarily that quick, but someone who they who they feel um, has been recruited for David Wagner's style, for that this system in mind. Um, how intrigued are you by this? 31-year-old, South Korean um Really, really interesting career. He's played in France. He's played in in Greece. He's not yet played a game competitively in England. A lot of his football in in South Korea. He becomes Norwich's first South Korean player. I did say their first Asian in the team video, but someone was quick to remind me that Zesh Raymond, uh, I think, was a Pakistan international. So he has that that crown. So he's, I think he's the second um, Asian to play for Norwich City. What do you make of uh, of this of of this deal and, and and how it all how it all came about? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, just to add to everything you've mapped out there, it was very clear because if I, you know, I go back and it feels like a lot longer, but I only go back to last Saturday and post-match Huddersfield, and um, and the nature of that um, in terms of the media was we, we didn't do a formal um, down to Colney presser for for the Bristol game, which was then the following Tuesday, the League Cup game. We did um, we did our post in the corridor. Well, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I was just building up to that. I was building up the experiment. sorry, sorry, sorry. Setting, but I mean, I'm sure people have watched that video. But essentially, it was Huddersfield to have their formal press conference setting where we did reflections on that four 0 win and all the good, good news around that. And then myself, Sam, and David Wagner and Norwich's head of comms uh, departed to outside of that door because I think Neil Warnock was coming through, and we certainly wasn't getting hold him up by uh, talking about Bristol City. Can you imagine that? I'd have been uh, I'd have been on some viral clip. Who the hell are you? Sort of vibe. But anyway, um, so we were basically ensconced. Yeah, yeah. We, we were ensconced in a corridor, which was, I think anybody's watched the footage, it's on the Pinkton YouTube channel. It's quite amusing to see which Norwich player next comes down the corridor. I think Duffy came down and he'd uh, and wasn't quite sure whether they should be shuffling past their, the, the manager. Um, you nearly ended but, up on the team coach, didn't you? Not far off. I was going to help with the crates at one point because the, the payoff to that story is that once we finished with David 
and he departed. We couldn't get back into the main room because that door was locked now because Warnock was holding court um, and they clearly didn't want us barging in. And he must, we must have been out there for 10 or 15 minutes and it was right the entrance to where the team coach was. So, yeah, I mean, we could have gone out there and got got abused by uh, the Norwich fans, but we decided now we'd stay in the uh, confines of the corridor around the corner. But long-winded uh, long-winded anecdote which probably has not served a, a purpose that um it was supposed to meant, be meant as a, an entertainment aside to uh, behind the scenes but um essentially david at that point saturday evening clearly josh sergeant nobody's fully aware of the extent he's going to be out he he's, he was more of a mind to well we've got options you know within the group existing options you know adam eder had scored ashley barnes had scored liam gibbs um he referenced could play in that more advanced role. And then we subsequently saw that at Bristol, actually, in the following game. Nunes as well. Um, and, and very much his, he was of a mind that um, we probably won't do anything. But as the hours and then the days have transpired and further assessment of Josh, uh, medical assessment, uh, and then culminating in, obviously, um, you know, on the Friday of the week, uh, you know, we've just finished. He's down in London where he, he, you know, has it confirmed that he needs surgery. I don't think the timeline has changed. I think they, it was very clear early on last week that this is a long one. And this is a serious injury. And at that point, as David said to, to me yesterday, you know, four months, he hadn't totted up, but it's a hell of a lot of games in terms of Josh Sargent's unavailability. If you remember, and it was pertinent because they came up against Jordan Hugel on Saturday, when he let Jordan Hugel go, he said, look, I like to work with three strikers. That's the number I like. Two, basically, in my match day squad, and then one who's, you know, pushing the other two. And in his mind, that was, at that point, obviously, it was Timu, and it was uh, it was Josh, and it was Adam. Then Ashley Barnes comes in, um, replaces Timu in, in that dynamic. But, of course, you know, if Josh is out for the foreseeable, and you're left with Adam Eder and, and Ashley Barnes, that doesn't fit the criteria of how David likes to work with his striker option. So, you know, it very quickly then turned to, can can they financially do something? Yes, they could. And um, and then as you've mapped out, Connor, you know, a list was drawn up. I mean, the, the Tom Cannon 7 million, that was hashtag circus, very much so. There was never going to be any prospect in Norwich were going to be spending 7 million or any, anything remotely approaching 7 million on a, on a striker. Because as I say, before they kicked off against Huddersfield, there was no striker strand to the remaining days of the window. You know, it was very much Sergeant Eder, Barnes. That's the way it's going to be. But unfortunately, um, events, dear, dear boy, events, that phrase. And um, and they have had to react and they've had to go back into the market at a very late time, um, relatively, and look at the viable options. And yes, as we're led to believe now, subsequently, uh, you know, while there was, you know, plates being spun um, with those other names you've referenced, Wang was... The one they felt had the, a lot of the attributes that, that Josh Sargent possesses. And we started this conversation um, talking about maybe what Josh brings that Adam doesn't in terms of the profile of striker and how important that is within the overall what David Wagner is trying to do with his team and has done successfully in those first six League and Cup games. It would appear, and I, I'll confess, I, you know, I haven't seen any of Wang in terms of you know footage of him, but David Wagner certainly has, and he feels that the pressing, the uh, the ability to stretch the play, just that work ethic, you know, all the things you 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 would you associate with a Josh Sargent type of game are in this this player's game, and and you know played at a good level in France, hasn't had an opportunity in terms of Forest and, and Premier League yet, but 
a lot of caps for South Korea, one of the powerhouses of Asian football. I think it's safe to say he's now away with South Korea, although bizarrely, I think they're playing two games in England, or sorry, one in Wales and one in England over this two-week period. So he's not going to have to do too much travelling. Um, but, but a pedigree of striker who you would feel would be able to come in and impact it in the way Ashley Barnes has done. Um, so that that's a really intriguing piece of business for me, you know, to see what this guy can bring, albeit at championship level rather than Premier League. You would hope with his pedigree and what he's done in his career that he would be able to come in and, and add something. And and if he's got some of the pleasing aspects of a Josh Sargent type of striker to him, um, then I'm not saying he's going to completely soften the blow and, and deliver everything that Josh Sargent would have delivered potentially in this period between now and when he's fit and available again. But, you know, if he can offset to a degree, then then the, the, then you would hope that overall Norwich can continue to move forward in terms of, you know, where they're pitching their ambitions this season. And then if everything goes to plan, Josh Sargent is available for the second half of the season. But, you know, out of what was a, a pretty desperate situation for the player, for his teammates and for Norwich generally, hopefully they've sourced a solution which can mitigate some of a feeling that, um, you know, the wheels could come off if they wasn't able to do something because, you know, Barnes and 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 Ida, I don't think will would deliver what Josh Sargent would deliver in terms of that out-and-out out focal point, the number nine, the big power, powerful presence who can run in behind athletically can battle with, with defenders and, you know, as he'd already shown, you know, potentially could get you a goal every couple of games at championship level. Yeah, um, just finally, and let's let's have some reflections on the transfer windows as a whole. Um, we've we've kind of reached the equivalent of the final. A deal sheet's gone in on the podcast, so we've got a little bit of an extension to talk about uh, to talk about the, the the window a bit more generally. It's, it's, we kind of spoke uh, earlier on about the finances and, and and where Norwich City find themselves, and I don't think we've ever not spoken about that as a a, 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 a I guess a, a pillar of of the way that the transfer windows. Um, panned out and I don't think you necessarily need to be an expert to see majority of their signings have been free signings beyond Christian Fashnak. He's the only player, senior player that they've paid a fee for this this summer and that was off the back of obviously losing Bali Mumba um, and obviously probably some of the uh, or you, you mentioned the, the uplift they got from the James Madison deal, whether that any of that was put into that or not, we don't know, but predominantly from the, the money they received from, from Bali Mumba got that deal across the line otherwise it, it was free transfers and obviously loans as well so um i think it's probably fair to say if you're Stuart Webber the 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 remit he had um at the end of last season was probably to raise funds for the, for the reasons that, that we've spoken about in terms of the the loans that they took out against future earnings and obviously if they were promoted that they'd then be taken out against the the broadcast money that that they got but at the moment it, it's having to be against future earnings um obviously lack of parachute payments as well uh it it was also probably to to reduce costs and i think the the best way to to see that is probably the decision to replace tim cruel who who would have been on a fairly healthy sum in in terms of wages with with someone like george long um but to to go through that cost cutting process whilst ensure whilst adding i guess the minerals and 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 all of those aspects but also predominantly to make sure they still had a team that david wagner could feel that he could be competitive with in the championship so if those kind of pillars that that maybe were the objectives at the start of the transfer window pad if we i don't know you can grade it you can rank it out of 10 i'll, I'll leave it i'll leave it up to you how successful is and obviously it's always 
the more time away from a transfer window can you look at it and assess it properly. But sat right here, right now, marking against those criteria that perhaps he had at the start of the window, how would you how would you assess, how would you reflect on the summer of uh, of 2023 and Norwich's transfer business? Well, I mean, if, if we were going to you know, put a figure to it, I mean, I, and obviously we're coming off the back of a, a bit of a disappointing 90 minutes, but a seven or eight, I think. I think it, it, it has been a good window for, as you say, the two twin track approach almost of trying to improve the squad and making them far, far more competitive in terms of championship aspirations and also the financial element, you know, which you mapped out there again. And, uh, on both measures, I, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a big tick, and um, I mean even in this picture behind me, you know, keeping the number seventeen for Norwich as well. Let's not underestimate that because um, you know I'm sure if they'd have pushed hard and aggressively, and, and Zara and his people had done, then there was a deal to be made there. Um, Stuart Weber said right at the outset of of the summer, serious interest in that player, and that was before he was, you know, he, he embellished his showreel with what he's done already in the early weeks of the championship season. So you know. It's also about who they retained as well. I mean, ultimately, Rashica wasn't going to be part of it, wanted to go. They got him out the door. Max, likewise, uh, we know from all sides that the, the, the time had come. And on Obama Daily, after the interest that was there in January, which Stuart confirmed at the end of last season, you know, there was always a sense right from the start of the summer and the fact that the planning had, was going into that in terms of the what if scenarios that he would depart as well. And as I said earlier on, hadn't dislodged Duffy or Gibson in terms of the championship starting lineup. So they've let players go who were not materially impacting um, what they're trying to do on the pitch this season, yet they've generated some significant funds. I think it's safe to say. So time will tell, as you rightly say, Connor, whether the, in terms of the, the, the dimension of have they improved the squad? Well, that'll, that'll be, that'll be apparent enough when we get to, you know, through into the season and then ultimately where they finish come next May. You know, I think they have. I think everybody feels they have on the evidence of the early weeks of the season. So, you know, I think it's safe to say the squad is better than than last season's squad, but how much better and how high the bar can be raised now, time will tell. But, you know, don't underestimate the financial constraints they were operating under this this transfer window um, because they're there. They're, in black and white in the last set of accounts. And, um, you know, ultimately um, this next season or the season after is going to be very challenging, I think, in terms of the financial remit, um, particularly if they don't get promoted because we're going to be back here again. And unfortunately, the player who is in that picture, if they don't go up, uh, I don't see any realistic prospect of them keeping him um, this time next year. So we, we might have a similar cycle. The next few windows, if progress isn't where they need to get it to in the pitch, on the pitch, in terms of promotion back to the Premier League. I think we may, may find that the, what we've just gone through in terms of the approach is is where they're going to have to pitch their tent in, in windows to come. That On one level, they'll, they'll want to obviously continually improve the squad or look to improve it, but on another level, they will always have to look to how they can generate funds to offset the lack of revenue from, from not being in the Premier League and, and um, you know, the, the that is really, you know, it's frustrating, I guess, when you've, you know, you've gone through a window and, and you're having to sort of maybe deal a, a certain 
part of the window or the market in terms of free agents and, and being creative, like the Borja Science deal there, you know, a player who had a, a relegation clause that got activated and they were able to do that deal. Um, but, you know, that's kind of was where the success from Weber and Farker first time round was rooted in the creativity and okay, accepting the hand you're dealt in terms of the finances, but then pulling rabbits out of hats in certain uh, places uh, of, of of players that they could source like Puki and, and Buendia and, and, and then, you know, where it went again, you know, they haven't managed to replicate to that degree uh, again, but that is the challenge. And, um, you know, ultimately, uh, if it doesn't happen, then, then that's probably going to, you know, lead to a period where it's going to be more about generating funds and and trying to develop. And you can see it now with with Johnny Rowe principally, but developing more young talent um, to, in the shorter term, improve your first team. But in the mid to longer term, if you don't go back to the Premier League, we all know the model. It will be to sell to to keep the club being a sustainable, self funded entity, and that that's the nature of it. And and. I don't think that should now be a surprise to any Norwich fan. Um, you know what the model is. Um, you know how it works. You know the pillars of the model. And uh, and the window we've just gone through, I think, is kind of where Norwich will be for the foreseeable, unless and until things click on the pitch and they uh, they get back to the promised land and, and all the attendant broadcast revenue that comes from that. Correct. Uh, there we go. The deadline has passed for the, the podcast. That seems like an apt place to wrap it up. Thank you very much for uh, watching or listening, however you consumed this podcast. And if you are an audio listener, just a reminder, you can, if you want to see our, our lovely faces on a Sunday morning after a trip to Rotherham and, and a, a long deadline day, that's uh, that's available to you as well. Uh, plenty more coverage and content to come throughout the international break. We've got some good stuff uh, lined up and I think you'll be probably hearing more from us very, very soon on, on certain stuff as well. So um, keep it locked to, to our channels for that. Paddy, thank you very much. Uh, enjoy your international break. Um, it'd be nice to get some sleep and catch up on, on all of that important stuff and we'll see you again very soon. <laughs>